Weekly Signals, every Tuesday morning from 8 to 9 a.m. Join me, Mike Casper, and Nathan Callahan for the best in reality-based radio. That's Weekly Signals. Check out the website at weeklysignals.com. The opinions and views expressed in this program do not reflect those of KUCI, its management, or the UC Board of Regents. To find out more about this talk show or other talk shows broadcasting on KUCI, log on to our website at KUCI.org or check out the latest program guide. Good evening. You're listening to KUCI at 88.9 FM in Irvine and online at KUCI.org. Welcome to Privacy Piracy. I'm Lloyd. I'm the show's engineer, and your host is Mari Frank. Mari's a local attorney and certified information privacy professional. She's the author of several books, including Safeguard Your Identity and From Victim to Victor, a step-by-step guide for ending the nightmare of identity theft. She sits as an advisor to the State of California Office of Privacy Protection, and she's a sheriff reserve here in Orange County. She's testified many times in Congress and the California legislature on privacy and identity theft issues, and you may have seen her on TV on Dateline, 48 Hours, NBC, ABC, CNN, O'Reilly, Geraldo, Montel, a lot of other shows. And uh, she did her own 90-minute PBS special last year called Protecting Yourself in the Information Age. To learn more about this radio show and our great guests, please visit KUCI.org slash privacy piracy. Good evening, Mari. Good evening, Lloyd. Well, tonight we are having a repeat guest who is absolutely our favorite guest ever. He is wonderful. He's a fabulous privacy expert. He's the most ethical person that I know. And he has so much to share with us always. And I want to tell you about Dr. Larry Pond a minute. And if you haven't heard him before, you might even want to go back to our website at KUCI.org slash privacy piracy and listen to some of his previous interviews as well, because he's terrific. Dr. Larry Poneman is a pioneer in the development of privacy audits, privacy risk management, and ethical information management. He is the chairman and founder of the Poneman Institute. Based upon his vast experience in the fields of corporate governance, privacy compliance, data protection, and business ethics, he consults with leading multinational organizations on global privacy management programs. Dr. Poneman was appointed to the Advisory Committee for Privacy for the United States Federal Trade Commission and two California Task Forces on Privacy and Data Security. Larry Poneman was also appointed by the Governor of Arizona to serve as public member of the State Board of Optometry. Dr. Poneman has held chaired faculty positions at Babson College and SUNY Binghamton, and he's published dozens of articles and five learned books. He's a frequent media commentator on privacy and other business topics for CNN, Fox News, CBS, CNBC, MSNBC, The Wall Street Journal, New York Times, Washington Post, USA Today, and so many more. You may read articles all the time like I do, and you'll see that Larry Poneman is quoted and his wonderful, very, very distinguished studies are also very well respected and have a profound impact on the manner in which organizations are changing their approach to important privacy and ethical issues. 
You can find out so much more if you visit www.poneman.org. And we thank you, Larry, for joining us from Michigan. Oh, thank you, Murray. What a wonderful opportunity once again to participate in your excellent program. Oh, well, it's fun, and I get a kick out of it, especially when you come on and when we get to do fun interviews together. So, Larry, I'm going to talk about some of these great studies that you've done, and let's start out with the data loss risks during downsizing. Mm-hmm. And this one was published in February of 2009, and it was sponsored by Symantec. So let's talk about why did you do this study, and, and why is it important? Well, it's a study that we were very interested in, in knowing about or learning from. And the key here is that as people are laid off, losing their jobs, which is a common occurrence, Today, unfortunately, you know, we think that people may think that the data that they have accessible to them in their job is actually their data for the taking. And so the purpose of this study was to really determine how pervasive is this problem. I mean, in other words, as people leave, are most people taking data that may not be their data, may be owned by the company? Examples might include customer files, employee files, contact information, and other forms of intellectual property. So we did the study. We didn't really anticipate a large percentage or a small percentage. It was really a descriptive study. And guess what we found? We found that a lot of people are leaving with a lot of data. And nowadays, they probably think it's their right to do it. You know, I recently got a call from several people who were victims of identity theft, and they found out that a woman who worked in a company that got laid off had taken all of the files with her, and she sold that information to identity thieves so she could have money. (laughs) (laughs) So, you know, here she was laid off, and she figured, okay, I've got this stuff. I'll just sell it. And it did come back to haunt her. They did finally get caught, and then they it came back to her. Mm-hmm. But if you can imagine when you're laid off and then you're desperate, it's, it's a very precarious situation. Well, we're seeing more and more people monetizing information. And so what you just described as a person, a maybe angry ex-employee, and maybe she felt like this was a, 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 an obligation of the company. And as a result of her anger in the company and having access to this sensitive information, she was able to generate revenue. I think what we found in the study, most people aren't that malicious. I'm I'm happy to report. I think a lot of people believe that what they're doing is benign. It's really not going to have a harmful effect, or they're not even thinking about it as the company's data. You know, we did some debriefing, and there was this one guy on the telephone as we were asking the question, so why did you report you know, taking all of these records. He said, well, it's really mine. I built the spreadsheet or I built the access database. So it's mine. I mean, you know, it's not even useful to the company anymore. So they're not even thinking in some cases that this is the company's data that they're taking, but it's in fact their information, their intellectual property, and they have a right to it. You know, why in the heck do they do this? I mean, why, why do they, what are they going to do with this stuff? Well, we, we do find that people take the information and a fairly large percentage admit that they're going to use it in their new job. You know, so, for example, for those people lucky enough to find employment, you know, they're laid off and they get a new job, the majority of those people admit to using the data in their new position. And let me give you an example. Suppose that you're in the sales, uh, sales organization of a financial services company. Uh, so you have your contact list. And, you know, you feel like, hey, these are the people that I sold to before. Why not 
use this contact list to sell new products and services for my new employer. Now, again, it's, it's, it's not helpful to the company, right, because they're losing a competitive, competitive advantage. But to the individual that's doing this, it's to their benefit to have this confidential information. Right. And, you know, a lot of them sign like non-disclosure agreements when they right. first go to, to work for them. So they, you know, don't they understand that they're in breach of that? Yeah, we, we basically asked that question, you know, do you see this as not only maybe an ethical issue, but as a legal issue because you've signed an agreement? Some people admitted that, yeah, they signed the agreement, but they still felt it wasn't going to be harmful and it was not necessarily traceable to them. So they felt a kind of a low level of accountability to safeguarding the information that they took. In other cases, people said, well, they weren't sure what they signed. You know, at the time that they're signing all of these forms and benefits and everything else through this new employee orientation, it wasn't clear to them whether they signed a document that was, in fact, a non-disclosure agreement. Well, how about when they're laid off? Don't they have to sign that they've returned everything? Well, it's kind of interesting. Now, it could be a, a factor of just how many people are being laid off, but right. we found that the exit process is really defective. And, you know, you would think as people are walking out the door with this huge box of papers and, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and, and DVDs and USB memory And thumb drives. And they always show that picture, right, in a layoff and somewhere on Wall Street, these guys and yeah. gals with, you know, business suits carrying boxes. And what's in that box? Right. Did anyone ask the question, is, are you allowed to take this information? But I think as people are walking out the door, they probably are listening, you know, to someone in the human resource department that, you know, they're probably not supposed to take this information, and they're not paying attention to the rules or to the HR department that may be making these statements. Maybe not. Yeah, and maybe some of them are actually doing um, remote work, so maybe they have it on their computer in their own home, and then they say, okay, you can keep that computer, or they have it on their laptop that was really their own laptop, and they just figure, well, what the heck, I've already got it. I don't have to return anything. Well, we talk about, you know, the box, but it's probably more likely that people are transferring the information. You know, maybe it's an attachment, uh, and they're using their web-based email in the workplace. Right. And it's basically transferred to their home computer. Or they had the data on a home computer working on maybe a legitimate business project, and they just decided not to return it. So I'm thinking of like a contact list where someone has a home computer, but it's data about the company, and they're certainly not going to make that extra effort to delete it from their home computer. So I think it's sometimes less insidious than you know that picture of someone walking out the door with a big box of confidential information. Right, right. Well, when we're talking about information, what kinds of information is most susceptible to employee theft? Well, it it is customer-related information, and customer contact lists was was basically pretty high up on the list. Uh, We also saw things like just customer files, even data dumps of customers. Employee records was also uh, commonly taken, emails, um, information that maybe on the surface doesn't doesn't seem all that uh, harmful to the company. But if you think about a customer file, and it's not just one customer, it could be hundreds or thousands of customers, that is in essence a data breach. And if it basically leaks out, right, someone takes it with them, there's an obligation of the company to report that to victims, data breach victims, which could be enormously costly yes. to a company. Yeah. 
So when we hear about all this, and especially now, Larry, when we know so many companies are laying off more and more people, you know, in the state of California, even our good friend Joan McNabb, she, you know, she has a day off every week. You know, I mean, this is this is scary stuff. California is, you know, our our budget is so bad. So many people are laid off. Our our sheriff's department, they have just recently actually made announcements that they're laying off top people, you know, a huge percentage of people. And so a lot of the top people do have access to this information. So what can these organizations do to protect themselves from this issue with these huge layoffs? Well, it it is a big problem, and there's probably not one magic bullet. I think a couple of things would be very important for a company to consider doing. First, as we mentioned before, have an exit process that's really rigorous, you know, not superficial. Hold people, if you know you're going to have a layoff, hold people accountable to a higher standard. Well, we found in our study that it wasn't done in a pervasive way. Some companies were implementing what I view as more of a CYA action, right? They were basically saying, don't take this information, but there wasn't really a lot of auditing or monitoring of the individuals as they were leaving. And if you're anticipating a layoff, probably you don't start on the day of the layoff. You start a couple of days before the the layoff or a couple of weeks before the layoff to try to look at the potential for sensitive and confidential information to walk out the door. I think there are data loss prevention technologies DLP specifically could be very, very valuable to an organization in the case of sending a large attachment like a customer file to my home computer vis-a-vis a web-based email account. Really suspicious stuff. There's technology now that will spot that for you and quarantine the emails that are potentially the you know, the wrongful, <laughs> unauthorized use of information. Right, and they might even set off like an alarm. I, I talked to somebody with one uh, company that, that when you try and send a big file out of the office, then it actually sets off an alarm to well, the that, IT that department. Is, that's very cool stuff. And yeah. I mean, some of this technology specifically will look at a file and will say, gee, that data on that file sure seems like a Social Security number and a name and a home address. So it really gets to the level of a high-level probability that that particular data is the dangerous data, the data you don't want walking out the door. So data loss prevention, DLP technology, are tools that are very, very valuable to organizations that are trying to manage the wrongful outflow. It's like the inverse of what a firewall is, right? It's like not preventing the bad guys from getting in, but preventing the bad guys or the negligent people from sending data outside. Right. So I know this study was done by Semantic. They probably have some information on their website, and there's many other companies that also are are looking into this because now we have the red flag rules that became effective August 1st. I know. And so with, with the red flag rules, every company and even law firms have to have a uh, identity theft prevention program, which would probably include the issues of, you know, data loss risk. Oh, absolutely. I mean, how do you create identity theft, right? You basically have data somewhere in the the organization that's not controlled very well, and it gets into the wrong hands. It's like your story of the the angry woman woman that's laid off, and then you sell, you monetize that information. So really, I think the problems of the wrongful outflow of information by disgruntled employees is very important and now, under the red flags rule, an organization needs to pay close attention to their business process, 
that could, in fact, give rise to these problems. Right. And, you know, in Orange County, a a good friend of mine who has been a uh, fraud DA, you know, handling fraud for 30 years, who just actually retired and is out on his own, he told me that in their office, 60% of the identity theft that they prosecute was dirty insiders. Oh, wow. That's a very high percentage, I think. Lots of, a lot of the problems that we see in a lot of our studies concerns the insider. Now, typically the insider is labeled negligent or incompetent, but not malicious. And I think sometimes we want to believe that to be true. Like we, we don't want to believe that a person is really malicious and they're trying to bring harm to the organization. So I think when we look at the, how, what's the percentage of insiders that are truly malicious, I don't think it's a zero-one or black and white. There are shades of gray of malicious. And I think probably a, a larger percentage than we believe to be true today is, in fact, a quasi-malicious to malicious employee. Right, Big or problem. are just negligent, which leads us to the next study I want to talk about. So that's a great segue. But before Thank that, you. for people who are driving by or listening in on the Internet, I just want to tell you we're talking with one of my very very favorite privacy experts. He is wonderful. I, he's a mentor for me. He's a friend. He is just, I think he walks on water and he can even forget things like I do. But we're talking <laughs> with Larry Poneman, who is a pioneer in the development of privacy audits, privacy risk management, and ethical information management. And he is the chairman and founder of the Poneman Institute. You can find out lots more about the wonderful work that they do at Poneman, that's P-O-N-E-M-O-N dot org. So, Larry, let's shift gears now and talk about, since we were just talking about the unscrupulous insider, mm-hmm. um, let's talk about the trends in insider compliance with data security policies. And this this was sponsored by Iron Key, and we actually interviewed a guy from Iron Key, and, and I, I have an Iron Key thumb drive, so oh, that was kind of fun. Good yeah, product. And um, the name of the study was Employees Invade and Ignore Security Policies. That's the subtitle. So tell us about this study. So where is the greatest threat to safety of an organization's information? Well, this is another weird Poneman study. We love weird studies, and we're very (laughs) proud of this one. Basically, we did this study first in 2007. And so this is a study in 2009, and, and we basically could see trends, whether things are getting better or potentially getting worse. And so I'll talk a little bit about the big trends. But in this study, we looked at seven areas of common vulnerability. And these areas of vulnerability includes the wrongful use of a USB memory stick, in other words, downloading sensitive or confidential information on a USB memory stick, the use of web-based personal email. We just talked about the scenario where I send a very sensitive document uh, to my to my home computer vis-a-vis the web-based email account, my Gmail or Hotmail account, downloading Internet software, which could be pretty dangerous because you could also be downloading malware and all sorts of bad stuff, the loss of a mobile data-bearing device could be a laptop computer or, again, like a USB memory stick, turning off security settings like antivirus, anti-malware, and even encryption because it's just inconvenience or it takes too long to boot up in the morning, Sharing of passwords, which is my favorite. This is one of those pet peeves, you know, since the beginning of corporate IT is a problem. And then last and not least, the use of social networks or social media in the workplace. So these are the seven areas that we studied. And we asked the question, does an organization have a policy 
that specifies the correct use of a technology or prevents you from doing something like downloading sensitive or confidential information onto uh, your USB memory stick if it's not encrypted. For example, if it's not an iron key um, USB memory stick. And what we found in almost every case, employees are um, not paying attention, maybe ignoring their company's security policies. And now in some cases, they are not aware of the security policy, which probably means the organization is not doing a good enough job in educating employees. These are all end users that participated in our study. And in other cases, it could be that the policy does exist, but it's like wallpaper. You know, no one really thinks it's that important. And, and as a result, they're just not taking it seriously enough because there's a lot, lack of organizational courage and accountability to enforce. Wow. And so we find the percentages are staggering. So what was the percentage that said that they, you know, that admitted this stuff? Well, in the use of a USB memory stick, we found that 61% said either they did or others in, their, in the organization routinely downloaded confidential or sensitive information onto a USB memory stick. Now, that was this year. That's the 2009 result. In 2007, when we asked the same question, it was 50% or 51%. Wow. So we see the trend in almost every case. Instead of things getting better, they're actually getting worse. In every case, there is, there is not a scenario that we studied where the issue was actually getting better. Now, we didn't study social networks two years ago because that was kind of a new area two years ago. Now it's old hat. But we found that, again, a lot of people are using social media and social networking in the workplace, and it may not be uh, – the organization might actually forbid the use of certain social networking tools despite that people find them cool, exciting, and interesting, and they're using uh, social networking, which does create all sorts of security vulnerabilities. So it's an interesting study. And again, very depressing outcome. A lot of end users are just not paying attention to the policies in their company. Well, it's interesting because I spoke with a privacy officer who explained to me that in her company, they actually have social networking that they've set up within their company. Right, right. (laughs) So what do you think about that? I think it's a great idea. You see, so you have social networking tools and you have wikis and you have, you know, Twitter and tweeting and all of this good stuff. That's not a speech impediment, by the way, tweeting. I love saying that, tweeting versus Twitter. (laughs) But we find that um, if an organization can control the social network and use it in ways that actually allow people to communicate and share ideas, but you can have some control over the content, you're probably doing good for your employees, and it's probably good for the organization. It's probably morale building. It's, It's something people like to do. But on the other hand, if you're using a, you know, a public-facing social networking tool or one that's generic, you run a huge risk that company confidential information will leak outside. And that's not a good fact. And you don't want that to happen if you're a company, even a small company. Right. So it actually makes sense that you, since people love, especially young people who are coming into the working force, yeah. uh, since they love to use social networking, you'd almost be better off to have it within the company so that there is some level of control and, you know, surveillance, so to speak, at least to see what's really going on there. Absolutely. The key is, you know, social networking and social media, it's here to stay. It's not going to change. And people, the, the dividing line between our leisure, our work life, and our leisure time is doesn't exist anymore, right? We, we carry these 
little blackberries and 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 iPhones and you know 24 7 365 days a year we're being annoyed by this technology so it's hard to separate so if an organization can create a like a social networking tool and have control over content and some level of monitoring it at the end of the day I think that could be a just a nice tool and and probably creates a good culture for communication yeah, you know, Larry, when when we're talking about the, you know, how these employees are acting, what about their attitude? Is it affected by, uh, I mean, does that affect whether they comply or not? I mean, you wonder about morale. What, is there any relationship? Yeah, I, I think we do find that organizations today, especially for people who are younger, instead of like old fogies like me, People who are, you know, in the age demographic of, you know, maybe 18 to 25 years of age, there's an expectation of openness and not a surveillance culture. Um, People believe that when they're online that their identity um, is anonymous, so therefore privacy issues aren't as important to them. And I think that culturally organizations have to change if they're not open, if they're not actually using some of these tools. Um, so I think what we're basically seeing today is that it's really hard for an organization to think of, like, this flow of information as something that's fixed and that if you build your walls tall enough and, you know, the concrete thick enough, you can prevent the wrongful outflow of information. Because information is everywhere, and tools, Internet and Web 2.0 related tools here are basically everywhere, and, p- and taking it away from a person basically diminishes, I think, a quality culture, especially in the mind of younger people. You know, I was thinking, if you don't, if your company doesn't treat you right, or you don't think your Trump company treats you right, or if you're mad at them, or if you don't think you're paid enough, or if you don't think that you're listened to or heard, I wonder how that affects the way that you're going to handle data. You know, and yeah. and compliance, and like if you say, well, they don't care about me, I don't care about them. They got some rules. They don't. They don't. I don't have to follow their rules. I don't like them. I just wonder, is that really a part of it all as well? I, I I do think so. And in fact, um, believe it or not, in that that first study we discussed, we had a question or a few questions that defined the employee's attitude about their former employer. And in the rare case where you basically like your former employer, and even though you lost your job, you basically don't hold a grudge against that employer, you are less likely to take sensitive or confidential information. Now, I know that's one of many behaviors, but it appears to me that a lot of us really don't like our our employer, and we're just not going to pay attention to their rules. But if we like our employer and we feel respected, we feel that the employer gives us an opportunity to communicate fairly and honestly, and there's transparency, I think these people are going to be better stewards of the information that they're responsible for protecting. So I think you're, you're onto something here. I think it's, culture is a very important part of this, and organizations need to pay attention to being better yeah, to their employees. It gets back to, I know you, I've heard you speak so many times, thank God, that you talk about the ethics and treating people right, and that's so important. And I, I really do think from people who end up calling me, saying that they were, you know, their company wasn't loyal to them and they don't feel any loyalty to the company. And, you know, I see this in wrongful termination disputes and and as a mediator and and other types of Title VII disputes. People think, 
well, gee, you know, they didn't treat me right. The heck with them. I'll go after them. So I think as we're talking and you're and if you're driving by and you are an employer, think about making sure that you are respectful and then you can earn the respect also of your employees. In this study, Larry, I'm wondering, um, did the people that you, the employees that you contacted, did, did they think that they had enough training regarding their policies? Or yeah, did good, they... good, good question. The people who responded to the training question said that training was either non-existent, superficial, they were looking for more. And they, and for example, the sharing of passwords. A lot of people feel like, hey, if I'm not going to show up today because I have a stomach ache, I'd like my, my uh, neighbor in the adjoining um, cubicle to be able to log on to my system. So they're not actually doing this for malicious reasons. They're sharing for convenience. Um, sounds like a good idea. Perhaps it's, it's a disaster if it's done um, you know, on a wider scale basis. But why would people do that? They did it probably because they were unaware of the security implications, the risk to the organization. And so I, I, I think, again, training becomes very important to changing the mindset, not for everyone. There will be some people who will take shortcuts, and it's all about convenience to them. But a lot of people, they want to do the right thing. They just don't know what the right thing is when it comes to information security. You know what I've noticed in recent years? A lot of companies do online training or, you know, training by video. And there isn't that human interaction. You know, maybe I'm old school. I'm an old lady already. But I think that there is something that is definitely lost when you're just being trained electronically. What are your thoughts? You know, I, I agree with you. You know, I remember when they had classrooms in organizations and you actually had professional trainers, people who understood how to train and created an interesting dialogue with the classroom. And I think the best training is going to be live training. The problem is it's costly to do this and it's costly to move people, right? So, for example, if you're going to have a training day and you're going to have people from all over the country converging on some nice part of California, San Diego, for example, um, it becomes a costly proposition. And so it seems like even if it's better to do the classroom training, um, you're going to get more mileage, more bang for the buck, if you will, if you do the, uh, if you do the e-learning program. Um, but I do think that the best training is live training. And I think a lot of organizations have just unfortunately abandoned live training because of cost considerations, which probably has had a, a, a negative effect on what people know and and how they they learn about issues like information security and privacy. Right. I think at the very least, they could have a training in one of their companies and videotape that and then send it around because then you've got the questions and answers. You you got people laughing. You got people, you can look at their faces. It's so much more human. Oh, yeah. I, I, I think that that's actually a great idea. And in fact, some companies are creating more of like a webinar, right, where you have a talking head, a little video shot of the instructor, but it's real time, and people can ask real questions, and the instructor, like I did earlier today, can forget. <laughs> <laughs> and then you can laugh. Then you can laugh at it, too. Right, right. It's not just a, a little, uh, you know, figure in, on the computer that's the running cartoon. around. That yeah, ant- the cartoon yeah. figure. And, and, you know, sometimes some of Like a virtual person. Yeah. <laughs> the heck with a virtual person, you know? Yeah. Have a real live person that, that makes mistakes like we do. 
then everybody else can laugh and say, oh, listen, she has a radio show and she can't even talk. So (laughs) (laughs) Nonsense. Well, let me introduce you again for those people who are driving by and you're hearing this. uh, We are speaking with one of my very favorite people and privacy experts. He walks on water, believe me. His name is Dr. Larry Poneman, and he is a pioneer in the development of privacy audits, privacy risk management, and ethical information management. And he's the chairman and founder of the Poneman Institute. You can find out lots more about him at his website at poneman.org, and that's spelled P-O-N-E-M-O-N dot org, and also at our website at KUCI.org slash privacy piracy, where we have a whole bio on him, and we link to his website. So we were just talking here about this study about insider compliance with the data security policies. So we know all the bad things about it. So what is your suggestion? We talked about training just a minute ago. Training is good. Training is important. Um, probably, you know, you start out by having policies that are readable, <laughs> communicating yeah. those policies to people in a meaningful way. So it's training and awareness and probably some degree of monitoring. You know, it does happen, you know, security and privacy, if they're important, but are they really that important? I mean, we have a lot of security issues, a lot of privacy issues, a lot of areas of compliance that are probably equally important. So people need to, or management needs to pay attention to the monitoring issue. If you don't monitor something, typically it's not that important in the mind of the employee. So monitoring establishes accountability and training establishes a level of awareness. And if you're doing that right, it's a pretty good deal. Now, you could use technologies again. There are surveillance technologies and DLP technologies, and people need to be aware that, you know, you are an organization, you're in business, you have assets in the form of information assets, and that an organization has an obligation to monitor. But I think organizations that need to be ethical and at least tell the employee in advance if they are, in fact, using some form of surveillance. Yeah, they need it needs to be transparent because if they know, hey, you know, they're just like when you get take a phone call and you know that it's being uh, monitored by some kind of recording. If you know that, that's okay. Then you know that, and that then you're on notice, and then you could say whatever you want to say. But it's yeah, I think the the company policy should be very transparent. Otherwise, you've got a whole issue of invasion of privacy if you aren't transparent. But if you have to do things, at least explain why you're doing it. And you can even ask employees, you know, if this is something that you're not comfortable with, let's brainstorm ways that we can do the, you know, the same kind of monitoring in a less invasive way. Yeah, see, I agree. I think organizations think they need to be real stealth and that just tipping their hand to the employee is going to create a a security vulnerability. Well, I don't think that's true, unless you believe the employee is a criminal, a cyber criminal. Then you have to ask the question, why did we hire him? Right. (laughs) So if you don't believe that the person is a cyber criminal and you do some background checks anyway before you hire the individual, you can let them know that there is some form of surveillance and they're being monitored. And it's important that they comply with the rules. And the other thing is you have to have this culture, this culture where the people at the top demonstrate that they follow the rules. And yeah. if they follow the rules, others will follow the rules. But if they don't follow the rules, and, and I have heard this from other people, well, you know what? <laughs> My boss doesn't do that. So why should I? Yeah. So I think that's, you know, it has to really come from the top down. Absolutely, Mari. I mean, this is what we see time and again, right? So the management say, well, I'm going to really hold my employees' feet to the fire. 
but then they do the worst. <laughs> yeah. They break more rules, and, and when they break a rule, it's probably on a larger and more expensive scale. So companies need to walk the talk, and this includes CEOs of companies. Senior executives are usually not the best people you know, to be kind. They're probably a little bit more likely to fall into that negligent or incompetent category when it comes to security and privacy protection. Yes. Yeah. So that's what, if you're driving by and you are the company head, you need to think about, you need to be the role model and everybody will follow. That's right. If you're the CEO and you're listening to us, well, shame on you for violating privacy. (laughs) No, I'm just joking. (laughs) Well, let's talk about one because if they're driving by, they might be driving to John Wayne Airport. And let's talk about the cost of a lost laptop because that I, I saw some amazing statistics about how many laptops are lost at airports. That just blew my mind. Oh, it's, that was a that was a infamous, more than famous study. Yes, yeah. But, yeah, we, yeah, we, but... Uh, we, love, we love laptops, and we love doing studies of lost la- or missing laptops because I should say we love it, but it's, it's a, it, it actually creates some interesting conversations. Yes. With, with people. <laughs> well, I know there are so many lost laptops every day at every airport, but let's talk about what is the value of a lost laptop? Well, what we find, well, let me tell you a little bit about our study. Okay, do. Yeah, we, we, we did a study, uh, again, a benchmarking study versus a scientific study, but these are real-life cases where an organization or within an organization, an employee lost a laptop. It may have been stolen or may have been lost, you know, negligence. But basically, we looked at 138 different cases in different companies, 29 different companies. And what we try to do is come up with a fair estimate of the cost. We use an activity-based costing method, which is a mouthful, by the way. Yeah. And the activity-based costing method basically focused on seven categories of cost. What we found is that the average cost out of 138, I hope people aren't driving too fast right now or, <laughs> or texting, but, but the average cost was $49,246. Amazing. So can you imagine? That's a mighty expensive laptop. Yeah. Now, even a tough book isn't $49,246. Right, right. <laughs> yeah, and so, I mean, they're losing important stuff like... You know, yeah, well, they're not, the laptop itself is almost like irrelevant, right? The laptop, the replacement value. Oh, yeah, that's nothing. $2,000. That's chump change. Right, and you can but, even have insurance for that. Oh, yeah, but it's all of the data, all of the information that may be unprotected, and it's either data about people and families, which could lead to a data breach, or it could be intellectual property, you know, things like source code or confidential memos. When that information is lost, it is a big-time cost for an organization. Let me get, in, my favorite part of this whole study, there was one case study out of the 138 where the cost, the loss, was almost a million dollars. It was $975,000. Wow. That is the most expensive laptop in the world. Mm. And let me tell you what happened in that one case. In that one case, an individual lost the laptop, thought that the laptop contained information, but nothing that was really that sensitive. And it turned out that when they try to figure out the documents that were on that laptop before it was lost, they found an Excel spreadsheet. And the Excel spreadsheet had numbers, nothing that looked all that sophisticated or, or, or detailed, but there were tabs to that spreadsheet 
that had information about employees. These were employees of the company, their social security number, their salary, oh, gosh. Their, bit, their rating, you know, what they an A level, a B level. So of course, data breach, boom, bingo, and close to seven thousand notifications need to needed to go out as a result of that lost laptop. So if you do the the math, it becomes a very, very expensive proposition. This is what we see every day. And only if you're lucky do you really know what was on that lost laptop. Right, because what about backups? Well, in some cases, it was a full backup, so you can reconstruct. But in the majority of cases, there wasn't backup. And so you had to guess, you had to infer, or you had to bring in your forensics experts to say, hey, you know, we think this is the data that resided on that computer. Oh, my gosh. Yeah, big mess. And how about encryption for those oh, of you asked the right that, question. That's a really important <laughs> issue. Yeah, well, it turns out that you would think, well, if, if data is the, is the crown jewel in the cost model that we just described, guess what? If you use whole disk encryption, the problem is solved, right? So you go out and you talk to PGP and you get whole disk encryption or you it well, it turns out that's not a hundred percent true. Yes, it is true that if you have encryption on the laptop, the cost, the average cost is instead of being like $49,000, it goes down about $20,000. So there is an improvement, but it doesn't actually go to zero. Let me tell you the reason for that. Well, the $20,000 that is, you don't have to um, report if under the security breach laws. Right. For example, if you've got data on you and me with our social security numbers or whatever, then you have to, if it's not encrypted, you have a duty to notify. But that duty pretty much goes away for most states if it's encrypted, right? Well, you're absolutely right. But I'll tell you, there's even a more insidious reason why it doesn't go to zero. Wow. And that's because people may have encryption on their system, on their laptop, but they may not use it properly. Uh, we call that the human factor. People will not use it properly or they'll turn it off because they don't like the, light, the lag. You know, they turn it on in the morning, booting up is too slow, turn it off, they have to wait an extra nanosecond, and, you know, we're all rushing and it's all inconvenient. So we see people turning off the encryption that exists on their system. And so it's the human factor, just not using the encryption properly that even with encryption, there's no guarantee that you aren't going to lose data in clear text, although it does make a difference. And there are better encryption technologies, I mentioned P2P and others, that really make it invisible to the end user. So even though they may not want to use encryption, they don't even know it's there. It's kind of helping them out. Are you talking about also the hard drive encrypted software? Yeah. Instead of just the software? Yeah. We use that and we are big fans of, of PGP, but I will say that there are other products, and also there's hardware uh, encryption uh, products that are very attractive. They really are invisible to the end user, and there's almost no degradation. They're just baked into the system, and you know, when it's not, uh, when you're using it, you're, you're seeing everything that you need to see, but if, you, if a bad guy needed to get inside, they would have a hard time, unless they were ex-KGB. Yeah. <laughs> you know, when I travel, I don't have anything, anything sensitive on my laptop at all. Nothing. Yeah, but, you know, if I do need something sensitive, it's encrypted in, in, you know, like a little thumb drive, like Iron Key or something like that. So, I love you Iron know, Key, that's easier because you can put it around your neck. I, yeah, I carry I my, do. I have my thumb drives that I carry around my neck. <laughs> well, you know, I, I, I have, I, I travel with my, um, you know, with my wonderful Iron Key product. 
and you know, I don't have to lug my laptop computer if I'm going to make a presentation, and I know it's safe, and if, God forbid, the little rope around my neck got loose and it fell on the floor, it, it would just be meaningless. It would be right. gobbledygook to someone who finds it. But so your presentations really, don't have sensitive data on it most of the time. I mean, it's right. I mean, it's no, no. Yeah, not so that's okay. Data. Yeah, well, let them have it. But I'm, but I'm obsessive. Let me, you know, I'm in the, <laughs> <laughs> so even though it's not sensitive data, I treat it as if it is sensitive. Right. So I'm doubly careful. But I do. I, I try not to travel with information that would fall into that category. Now, on occasion, you know, we're in the research industry, and we do have data of people who participate in our studies. Oh, that's so true. On occasion, you know, we do have sensitive data, but I wouldn't be carrying that with me. No. Or they would kill me if I did that. <laughs> <laughs> and you walk your talk, and I know that. So well, that's good. You. Yeah, so what is some of the implications for organizations and something that we can advise people who are driving by? Well, I, I think the number one implication is that there are technologies that do reduce the risk. And I do think these anti-theft technologies... For example, Dell has produced a whole bunch of really nice uh, uh, anti-theft technologies and even uh, outsourced services to companies that don't have the people in-house to do the forensics properly or ensure backup. So anti-theft and definitely encryption and a whole disk encryption product, these are the things that should be top of mind, especially if a large percentage of the workforce travels and travels with a laptop computer. You could also make sure that people, when they are traveling, Instead of traveling with their laptop, there's another laptop, you know, the communal laptop, that is just a computer. It doesn't have a hard disk, and therefore the iron key that you carry becomes your de facto hard disk drive when you travel. I also think that a lot of organizations just need to think about data minimization and say, look, if you don't have to have lots of this information on your endpoint, you shouldn't have it there. It should be in a, a secure file somewhere within the organization. You know, many layers from the DMZ, there it is. And you could access it when you are through the network, through the VPN, with the right authentication, but there's no reason to have it on an endpoint. So I think a lot of the basic blocking and tackling that an organization could do to reduce the risk is not that costly. It could be done just with a little, they just need to be thoughtful and have a policy that doesn't slow down the business process. Because once you do that, it's not going to be taken seriously. That's another problem. Right. And, you know, you want your endpoints to be accessible, but you don't necessarily have to have them insecure to be accessible. You know, that actually leads us to the last study that I want to talk about, which is the business case for data protection. And there was another study that you did this year. Yeah. And and that one was the study of CEOs and other C-level executives. And I know we have right here sitting on the campus, we have a lot of CEOs driving by in Newport Beach and Irvine and those who come and teach here as adjunct professors. So that's really important that we talk about that, especially with our business school here. So this one was sponsored by Ounce Labs, and talk, talk to us about this study. Well, this is a uh, another uh, weird Poneman Institute study, a weird in a in a positive way. <laughs> what we wanted to do is, if we wanted to understand um, what C level executives and more specifically CEOs of companies think about privacy and security. What we we hear the, 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 this is the myth, right? That CEOs don't really care about it. Or they only care about it after there's a huge blow-up. So, you know, you're the CEO of TJX. Boy, oh, Bob, are you <laughs> going to care about privacy? Right, right. But, or it's all over the newspapers. Right. But, but it, we, there was, you know, some evidence 
here and there that suggested that the CEO pushes the responsibility down to a kind of a middle manager level, and then they, they just forget about it, and they think that, think that everything's okay. And even if they do think about privacy and security, they don't actually understand its value proposition. Or if they consider its value proposition, they think about compliance with law or the security issue, you know, putting, making sure the bad guy doesn't access the information. Rather than, rather than seeing the benefits or the opportunity created by being good at privacy and information security. So what we did is we were, this is a very hard study. It took about five and a half months to complete, but we did uh, uh, interviews with um, about 200, I think the total number, I don't have the study right in front of me, so I'm going to recall, even though there are senior moments, 213 respondents and of the 213 respondents, all C-level, so these would be people like CEOs, CFO, COOs, uh-huh. uh, CFOs, CIOs, EIEIOs. These are, <laughs> <laughs> these are pretty senior-level people, right. but not security people and not privacy people. So these are people who are in the, you know, the, the upper echelon. 30 people are CEOs of companies. So we actually do have a fairly large group. You know, when you think about how difficult it is to get an audience with the CEO, but 30 CEOs. Right. And what we found is that, well, the good news is that the C-level and specifically CEOs find a lot of value in privacy and data protection. They actually recognize it as an important business objective. That's the good news. They also think that the person who is the most likely C-level to own privacy and security, this is from the CEO's perspective, is the CIO, the chief information officer. But when we talked to CIOs in this study, they said, nonsense, we're not responsible for (laughs) that. They pushed it down to the CISO, the chief information security officer, or the chief privacy officer. So there was that issue. So everybody's pointing at everybody else. Everybody's pointing at everyone else. And then the CEOs and the, C and the other C-level executives realized that it was good to be, um, you know, uh, have a, a, a privacy culture that supported the customer or the employee. They saw really good benefits to the company's culture and reputation and even brand, but they didn't really have a way of measuring it. And because they couldn't measure the positive impact of privacy and data security, they didn't factor it into the corporate ROI, which mm-hmm. meant that they didn't provide proper funding for security or, or privacy. So while it's viewed favorably at, by sea levels, it doesn't necessarily get an adequate amount of funding. Let me just tell my audience that ROI means return on investment. Right, return and, on uh, investment. I know you know this like the back of your hand, but some people driving by or, or students listening may not understand that lingo. So it's important that and we've talked about this many times at at uh, our RIM conferences, that if they don't see that there's any return on investment, they're not going to put money in it. They're not going to put their money where their their mouth is, basically. Right. Yeah, if, if they don't have a sense that, you know, if I spend a dollar on privacy, that I should at least get back, you know, a dollar and five cents. <laughs> right. Dollar and seven cents, but I don't want 85 cents back or zero cents back. I'm going to I'm going to buy this. I'm going to improve my organization because I believe it's going to add more value to my company. And we and so again, CEOs and other C-level executives say they believe that to be true, but without the metrics, the ways to measure the return on investment ROI, 
they are unlikely, very unlikely to, to provide adequate funding. And that's what's so sad. They don't have to, they don't add the funding until they go through like a choice point breach right. or, or TJ Maxx or all of a sudden that they realize, oh my gosh, we've experienced this whole thing. I kind of think that's human nature. Like it's interesting that uh, for my books, for example, fewer people buy safeguard your identity than they do from victim to victor after they've been victimized. That the protection isn't as important as after you've experienced it. I think that's maybe an emotional response. It's, it's like experience. I'm not going to spend the money unless I need to. Yeah. So so it's you know it's like the the going to the doctor for prevention. Right. And especially if you're a male and my age, it's like <laughs> probably a good idea to do this. <laughs> but you don't do it until there's like this chest pain. No, God forbid. But. I think the key variable is that this is the human experience. Companies are that suffer a data breach or have a huge security problem or reputation meltdown. You mentioned ChoicePoint or TJX. Boy, these organizations get real religion around privacy and data security. And sometimes it's for the long haul. I mean, we know of many cases the best companies today for privacy and security probably you know, 10 or 20 years ago were the poster child of a big privacy problem. Exactly, exactly. They, You know, some of them really step up to the plate and then they become leaders. Absolutely. And, and get real great privacy officers like Carol DeBatiste for, you know, who went oh, to Carol Choice Point yep. and then LexisNexis. So, no, I think you're right. I think when they, like, they, they get religion real quick and then they hire people really great and they also get people like you to come in and advise them. So, you know, it's important. One of the things in the study that kind of shocked me, um, and maybe I shouldn't have been shocked, was that uh, you found that 36% of the executives are not confident that their organization will avoid a data breach. Right. That right. one scared me. It is pretty scary. Even though the CEOs believe that privacy and security, these are important things, they also recognize the fact that data breaches are hard to control and as a result, they felt that it's, it's, it's possible or even likely that their organizations will suffer a data breach within the next 12 months. So it's not a positive picture, right? On the one hand, they say, hey, I don't have metrics, I'm not funding. And then the other hand, they say, and by the way, we believe we're going to have a data security problem like a data breach sometime over the next year. Wow. Yeah. So what kinds of things do you suggest What did you from what you learned from this? I mean... Gosh, great question. You know, what we find is that organizations, if you're a CPO or a chief information security officer, what a great opportunity today to developing metrics that prove return on investment. If you could actually take what you do and convert it into a value proposition that shows that the organization is better, stronger, has better brand, better marketplace image, more customer trust and loyalty, whatever it is, come up with a model that's defendable, and I think that would actually lead to a much better outcome. Because I think the CEOs and C-level executives are looking for proof points. And if the CISO or the chief privacy officers could put together that case of objective metrics, I think they would be much better able to secure funding for what they do. Right. Well, I, I wondered, and I guess this gets back to one of your other studies and studies that we've talked about before, which is if the CEO, um, rather, if the chief privacy officer 
is higher up and reports to the CEO or someone next to the CEO, they, they have the ear of the CEO. But if they're way down there and reporting maybe to HR or something like that, maybe they don't have the leverage to even convince the CEO of this. So what about that? Well, that is a great point. A huge issue and a big problem that actually seems to be getting worse rather than getting better. We see a lot of people who are successful chief privacy officers, women and men, who basically do the job so well that they lose their job or they get demoted in the organization or they get put into another role. And the reason is that the organization declares victory. They say, hey, we now have a successful privacy function, so why do we need to have a C-level executive running this? We could have a middle manager or an upper-level manager, but not necessarily a chief privacy officer. And it's a mistake. If you're going to do this right, you need to have a person with clout. That person needs to have the ear of the CEO and maybe even the board of directors when things are in conflict with the CEO. But we don't see many organizations taking that great advice until they get into trouble. And then, if they're really smart, they hire a Carol de Podista. She is the best. <laughs> exactly. Well, Larry, we don't have much time. Uh, we have about another minute. And I just want you to be able to give some overall important suggestions for those people who are driving by who either work in a company or they run a company. And how can they really be uh, responsible for their information management? Well, okay, number one, it's have a sense of humor. <laughs> Good. <laughs> because th- this is a very, very difficult issue, and it's probably not going to be- get better in our lifetimes because of all of the wonderful enabling technologies that are being used today. And we know that the issues are very, very difficult to manage. So it starts off be- with being brave, having a good sense of humor, and being open-minded. Um, if you do these things and you look at the security and privacy issues in your organization, it might seem like the problems are intractable, they might be, but I think that if you, if you tackle them one at a time and you're, if you're a senior-level manager, you should be an inspiration to your subordinates and basically walk the talk. Um, do it for yourself. Hold your employees accountable to a high standard, and I think at the end of the day you're going to be improving things for your organization. So that's my word of advice. Well, that's Great. the end of the day. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> that's the end of the day for and that's us, the too. End of the day. <laughs> <laughs> Larry, you are wonderful, Dr. Larry Poneman. Everybody should go to his website at poneman.org. And we will, of course, have you back again real soon because oh, you have always you. fabulous studies to talk about and so much insight. You are the best. We love you. You are the best. Thank you so much, Mari. <laughs> we'll talk to you again soon. Good evening. Bye-bye. Bye. You've been listening to KUCI 88.9 FM in Irvine and KUCI.org in the net. I'm Mari Frank. Join us every Wednesday from 5 to 6 p.m. right here at org and 88.9 FM in Irvine. And also visit our website at KUCI.org slash privacy piracy. See our upcoming guests, download podcasts, listen to archived interviews, Write us emails. What's important to you in the information age? What are you worried about? Thank you again. Good night. Stay private. Good night. The opinions and views expressed in this program do not reflect those of KUCI, its management, or the UC Board of Regents. 